Whoa, it's loud. <laughs> yeah. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord. Make, every, make your way to the sanctuaries, your fellowship. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Praise God. He's good, amen? amen. He's been good to me. Has he been good to you? Lord's been doing really interesting things. He's been operating in interesting ways. We see hurricanes happening in uh, California on the West Coast. It's crazy. I never imagined that in my whole life. My, my older brother lives in Riverside. So he's getting the rain right now, and so he's just, this is the weirdest thing ever. And they've had more rain this year than they ever have. Isn't that crazy? Matthew 24, we look at that scripture, and it says that there's going to be signs of the times, amen? And what are those signs of the times? They're the signs of the time of the return of Christ, amen? I'm excited for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm excited for the redemption of the church. I'm excited to see what God has for our future as a church. I'm excited to see the, the revival that we're going to experience here. God has something promised for us here, church. God has something special here promised for us at Eastgate. And I truly believe that we will be reaping all the, the time, the hard work, everything that we've been sowing into the city, everything that we've been sowing in prayer, everything that's been poured out into the city I believe that God is truly going to reward us with a great harvest here. God is bu building up pillars. He's building up strong leaders in this place. And, and the Lord's doing what he wants to do. And he's doing it through us, all of us, every single person who is a part of this church. God is doing it through you. Don't remember or don't forget what God is trying to do through you, how he's doing it. And he's doing it by lifting you up. He's doing it by increasing you with blessing. He's doing it by increasing you uh, with things of, of Him. Increasing you in knowledge of His, of his Word. Increasing you in uh, the ability to be able to be widespread, to be able to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing. He's opening the doors of heaven for us to be able to reach people. Don't be shy of the divine things that God places in your life. There's going to be times, there's going to be opportunities at the store, at work. Don't let them go by. If we're not prayed up, they're just going to go right out the window. Right. If we're not allowing ourselves to be consecrated, we're not even going to be able to see these divine encounters that God places in front of us. But as we head towards the resurrection of the church, I want us to remember God gives us the signs of what's to come. God gives us the opportunity to be able to see all these things happening in front of us, to be able to give us a remembrance of Jesus is coming soon. He's really coming back and he really wants to take us with him. Amen. Praise God. Continuing on for those who haven't been here, we've been breaking down the principles of the doctrine of Christ and without these principles, we don't have a foundation. Without having these principles in our life, uh, we don't have the ability to grow. 
But as we study these principles, this is the last principle. As we read here in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we do if God permit. And we're on the last lesson, amen, on the resurrection of the dead. And the Bible really breaks it down into three main topics, which is the resurrection of the dead, the physical and spiritual resurrection. As we are in our flesh, amen, we have to die to our flesh. But God spiritually resurrects us by His Spirit for us to be able to be resurrected in the day that He calls His church home. Amen. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no ability for us to be resurrected. There is no spiritual resurrection inside of us unless Jesus Christ did what He did and fulfilled it. And guess what? He did it. Amen. I have assurance today that God has spiritually resurrected me. I have assurance and hope in this place that God has spiritually resurrected you by His blood by the sacrifice, amen, and being buried, resurrected, amen, in the name of Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk about the resurrection of the church. And can we just stand for a moment and pray? Hallelujah. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus. I love you. I appreciate you, God, for all that you've been doing. I thank you, God, for what you've been pouring into this body, what you've been doing in our minds, God, what you've been doing in our spirit. I ask, God, that you continue to work on me. Continue, God, to do what you want to do in me, Lord, molding me as clay, Lord Jesus, and allowing your word to be absorbed into my heart and allowing me not to just be a hearer, but to be a doer of your word, God. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Can everybody say, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Talking about the resurrection of the church. What is the resurrection of the church? The resurrection of the church is the idea that God is going to catch away his bride. That's really the idea of what the resurrection is. The resurrection is commonly referred to as the rapture. And what is the rapture? The word rapture comes from the Latin word Rapio, which means to catch up or to seize. And we see that here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 17. And it says, then, which, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. And the awesome thing is, is this is not just a New Testament idea. This is something that God showed the prophets as well, we see the prophet Isaiah uh, giving this word right here in Isaiah 26 and 19. And it says, thy dead man shall live together with my, my dead body. Shall they arise, awake and sing ye that dwell in dust for thy dew is as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. The idea or timing of the rapture is a very uh, contested idea, and it's something that everybody holds a different viewpoint on because there is no specific 
saying the rapture is going to happen at this time. There's, there's no specific. It's more of guesstimation. We can take some phrases here, some phrases there. Is anybody pre-trib in this place? It, f- feel free to raise your hand. Some people are mid-trib. Okay, mid-trib, po- uh, post-trib. Okay. Whether we get raptured out of here, wh- whether the timing is pre-mid, post-trib, really doesn't matter. What really matters is that God is coming for His church. What really matters is that God is coming to redeem His bride that He had died for. That God is coming to redeem His church that He loves so very much that He would lay His life on the altar, amen, and forgive us of everything that we've ever done. We don't deserve that, amen, but what we do all believe together is that everything right now is pointing to the imminent return of Jesus Christ and the, catch away, the catching away of his bride as we see in 1 Thessalonians 14. And the interesting thing is that all the scripture talking about a resurrection or a catching away of the church doesn't necessarily point to, his, uh, point to the, the rapture, but it points to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And I really like the way that Jesus expresses it here in this parable in Luke 12, 35 through 40 in the Amplified. Um, You know, it's often that we can't make a doctrine based off of one scripture, but it has to freely flow with the rest of scripture. We can't guesstimate one doctrine because of one scripture, but what we can do to gain an understanding of what something is and how something works is by using all scripture to prove that point. That's what makes a doctrine, amen? And Luke 12, 35 through 40 says this, Be dressed and ready for active service, and keep your lamps continuously burning. Be like the men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that when he comes and knocks, that they may immediately open the door for him. Blessed, happy, prosperous, To be admired are those servants whom the Lord finds awake and watching when he arrives. I assure you, the most solemnly say to you, he will prepare himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch before midnight or even in the third after midnight and finds them so prepared and ready, blessed are those servants. I want to be ready for His coming. Whether He's coming, like the Scripture says, before midnight, whether He comes after midnight, I don't really care, but I sure would love to have a pre-tribulation rapture. I don't want to be here anymore. Amen? I want the Lord to come and take me. Who doesn't? But at the same time, think about Israel. Could it be that we could be like Israel and we have to go through the tribulation? I'm not sure. But the idea that I would stay faithful regardless if I'm waiting for a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture is the thought that I'm going to stay faithful regardless of what the Lord puts us through. We're His church. We're His bride. And God gives us the opportunity to serve Him now. That way we don't have to wait to be resurrected in that second resurrection when we have to be eternally judged for our actions. But I want to be resurrected in the first resurrection where the Lord finds us to be faithful and His bride. 
That's what I want to look forward to. I don't want to have to look forward to uh, just getting ready right before uh, some crazy things go on, but I want to be ready now to be able to be ready to meet my Creator, to meet my bride, my, our eternal bride, who has done everything that He has done for us. Amen. Jesus wants to be ready because the timing of the catching away is when we are changed from earthly to heavenly. We, we read this here, but uh, in verse 39 of that same scripture we just read, and it says, Be sure of this, that the head of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have been awake and alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be continually ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. This isn't him talking to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. This is talk, him talking to his disciples, gaining an understanding that we don't know the time when he's coming back. We don't know the exact hour, but he does give us signs to be able to see when he's coming back. Amen. I don't want to get caught up on possibilities. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to get caught up on uh, maybes or, or hope so's, but I want to clearly articulate what, where, and who the rapture of the church is for. That's what I want to talk about today. What will it accomplish for the church? What's it going to do? Amen. We could sit here and uh, debate for hours whether it's going to be a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, who are the elders? Who, who are these people? Who are they? But let me tell you this. The scripture plainly lays out who the resurrection of the dead is for. We open up slide five for me, Joe. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is uh, the scripture by which that we see that we understand that God is going to actually resurrect the church. Amen. And it says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, but that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which, were, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot that we can see. But the biggest things that really stick out to me is that there's two groups here, but there's one resurrection. We see the dead in Christ rising first, and then those which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So who are the dead in Christ? If we read 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, it gives us an explanation of who these people are and what's going to happen here. 
And so it says this. Now say this, I, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal should, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. So who are these people? Who is the dead in Christ? There's two groups of people here. We see one group, which are the dead in Christ. And according to uh, many commentators, according to uh, the way that sleep is used, which I'll go over here in just a moment, this would be believers that have died. And we can see this context by going back to verse 13 there. Uh, in First Thessalonians, and he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you would sorrow not, even as the others which have no hope. What he's saying is that we're not to grieve over those that have been in the faith, but have died. Why? Because they're going to be raised first. They're going to be the first ones who are going to see the Lord. Amen. And then the second group of people is expressed to be those that are alive and remain. And Paul identifies himself with this group by the use of we. So what he's explaining here is that there's two groups, the believers that have died, which will rise first. The second group, which is the born-again believers, those of us which are alive and remain shall be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And the interesting thing in verse 13, we go back and look at that. It says, but I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. What does asleep mean? Does it mean they're literally just sleeping or, uh, or is this a figurative metaphoric act, uh, expression of those who are dead in Christ? Uh, if we look at the Greek word for this word sleep, it's koimeo, and it's to put asleep to passively or reflexively, to slumber, figuratively, to decease, sleep, or be dead. We see this word used uh, in similar contexts to that idea. Could it be that this is expressing somebody who is dead? Uh, we see John 11 when he talks about Lazarus sleeping. It's the same word there. 1 Corinthians 15 and 20 talking about now, but now Christ is risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. It's the very same word used there for slept. And 1 Thessalonians 15, which 4 and 15, which we just read, 
for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, which are alive and remain coming unto the Lord, uh, unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. This using, uh, I like using chat GPT to give me uh, some more understanding on how these Greek words are used because I don't speak Greek and chat GPT speaks a lot more Greek than I do. <laughs> and it expressed this with the usage of this word in the Greek. And it says that the verb, prim- uh, this verb primarily means to sleep in the sense of being in a state of unconsciousness during the night or the resting period. We could say that that's that REM sleep when we're totally out, where there's uh, no waking up. And if we're woken up while we're in our REM sleep, I wake my kids up in their REM sleep and Gideon's all of a sudden just freaking out and all of a sudden I see all this stuff and I'm like, what's going on with you? (laughs) And imagine being woken up like that, amen? And it is commonly used to describe the action of going to bed at night and falling asleep. But it can also be used in the broader sense to mean to die or to be at rest in death. In this context, it generally refers to the eternal uh, sleep of death. As we die in our flesh, we are said to be sleeping until what? The resurrection of Christ. That's what the dead in Christ raising means if we use this context. In slide 10, we see the word Kathyudu, uh, which means to lie down, to rest, to fall asleep, or to be asleep. And this word is different than that word used that we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 15, 1 11. Uh, this word is different. And we see it used in the context of the parable of the ten virgins. So in Matthew 25 and 5, expressing while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept, all ten of these virgins being in the same place. But the interesting thing, and again, this is chat GPT, but it says this verb means to sleep, but it is often used to refer to taking a nap or resting during the day. It can also imply a lighter, more temporary form of sleep compared to the previous word, which often refers to the deep or nighttime sleep. But this word can be used metaphorically to mean to be inactive or at a state of neglect. Amen. There's, that's interesting because then we could look at that definition of that word and really have a paradigm shift of really what that parable of the ten virgins really means. Could it be that that's talking about backsliders? Could it mean that it's talking about those that have been that have walked away from Christ? That's definitely a possibility. But in the summary of both of these words, while both words mean to sleep, the first word we use is generally associated with that nighttime deep sleep, while the other word is used for daytime naps or former, uh, lighter forms of sleep. And so the choice between these verbs depends on the specific context and the level of sleep intensity being conveyed, which is an interesting thought because then we can look at that context of the ten virgins being those that have temporarily fallen asleep, those that have probably neglected their relationship with God. Those, but all the interesting thing about that, that, that parable is that all of them fell asleep. 
Every single one of them fell asleep. But half of them were ready. Half of them were ready to go, while the others were looking forward to, oh, I'll just take a little bit of oil out of their lamps, and, you know, there's going to be a point where the door's going to shut, where I don't have enough oil to give to somebody else, where I don't have enough to give to somebody else to, to re- truly meet my bridegroom, amen? And so when we think about that parable, when we think about the dead in Christ and that where they're sleeping is in a state by which when we die on this earth, that we can have hope and assurance that we're going to raise in that first resurrection as he promises in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Amen. In slide 11, the idea of Christ rising, the idea of the the dead rising in Christ, there has to be a death. In order for us to raise in the first resurrection, there has to be both a physical death and a spiritual resurrection. Amen. And the awesome thing is, is that God gives us that opportunity. When the gospel is preached unto us, we get that opportunity, amen, to be faithful to his word, understanding what is the difference between the first and the second resurrection, which I will go over next week, amen, as we talk about eternal judgment. But picking up our own cross allows us to rise in the first resurrection. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 15 and 50, we read earlier, but it says, Now I say this, brethren, that, the f- that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. John 5 and 28 and 29, talking about the Pharisees and the old Jewish beliefs of good works and bad works. And this is from Jesus himself expressing that, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, and then they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And Revelation 20 and 5 through 6 expresses it this way, But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished, talking about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And he says this, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I want to be a part of that first resurrection. Does anybody else? But we know the requirement is that there's no more flesh and blood of who? Ourselves. So there has to be a process of a physical death. What does this mean? If we read Romans 6, 3 through 11... It gives us a great explanation of what that means. And it says, Know ye not that so, so many of us, as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. So that's the death aspect. That's the death of who? That's the death of me. When we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, no longer in the spirit realm does it say Godfrey Naluka. Now it says Jesus. When we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, when we're baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, I now take him on. And not only that, he takes me on. 
And it says, therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, that the like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, has be being raised from the dead, dieth no more, and death have no more dominion over him. For he that died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Without the John 3, 5, Acts 2, 38, born again experience, there is no first resurrection. We have to be born again to be able to see the kingdom of God. We have to be born again to take a part in the catching away of the church. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? John 3, 1 through 8, he expre Jesus expresses this to us in a conversation. And it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, that came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou dost, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the same language that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it is expressing that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we're seeing a, a, a correlation here. And we see in, uh, in verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time to his mother womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto ye, thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou heareth the sound thereof, but canst tell us where it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And I think the Word usage here is interesting. The, this is really cool. And this is way before Paul. Just so you know, this is the words of Jesus. He first starts with, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. The second time he says you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And if we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, it says you can't inherit the kingdom of God if you have flesh and blood. There's an inheritance promised, there's an entering promised, and there's a visual aspect promised, but we have to be born again the way that Scripture says. Not that a church says, not that a confession or a creed or uh, whatever may say, but what does the Word of God say? 
What does the Bible say about receiving a physical death or a spiritual death? Amen. What is this, the, the biblical precedent for experiencing this by which that we can inherit, enter, and see the kingdom of God? And that is being born of water and spirit, which was fulfilled in Acts 2.38, and where he says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for this promise is unto you and to your children and to those that are all or are far off. That's for all of us. That promise is for each and every single one of us. And if we want to enter into the kingdom of God, we have to be born again and be ready, ready for that first resurrection while as we inherit the kingdom of God. That's happening. When God resurrects us from the dead, we are inheriting the very Abrahamic covenant that was given in the beginning. When Jesus comes back, when, when the church is taken away, that is the day that Abraham's promise is fulfilled. As we go on to slide 14, <clears throat> understanding that there's three points of resurrection, it was the physical, spiritual death, amen? Well, we can look at it this way. Without the physical death, and spiritual resurrection, there is no resurrection of the dead. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no resurrection of the church. We have to be born again to experience the rapture. And with the death of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. Amen. And 1 Corinthians 15 and 12 through 8 expresses it this way. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith also in vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he had raised up whom he raised not up. And if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. The resurrection is the hope for the church. The resurrection is the thing that we get to look forward to. The resurrection is really everything that we're working for. All this that we're doing, not in my selfish thoughts, not in my selfish motives, but working for the kingdom of God is so much greater than myself. Working for his purpose, working for what he wants me to do is so much greater than spending an eternity somewhere else. I don't want to spend an eternity in hell. I can promise you that. There's nothing worth it in this world to do that. Once you have a kingdom mindset, once you have the paradigm or, or the lens to look through, that everything in this world is based on working for the kingdom of God, that there is going to be a day where we truly have hope in the resurrection because we understand that as we work here, that we're going to rest there in eternity, worshiping Jesus. You know, we get caught up with the idea, ah, oh, oh, man, prayer is too hard and uh, it's too hard to go do outreach and it's so hard to go do all this stuff. But what's this all for? Right. 
What's the purpose of all this? What, what am I going to get out of this? You know, what, what is this going to do for me? I can promise you this, that the resurrection is the hope for all the hard work. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, for what? To look forward to that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. Denying the, ungod- the ungodliness. De- denying our, our lusts. Allowing ourselves to be changed, to be shifted in our mindset to be able to take on Christ. To be able to take on the actions of becoming more like Christ. Because the less of us, the more that Jesus radiates through our lives. James 5, 7-8 through 8 says... Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, established in our hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. God's not forcing us to live for him. God's not forcing us to do anything, but what He's offering is, is so great. What He's offering us is the greatest gifts that we could ever receive. Amen. And that's allowing ourselves to be obedient to the Word of God. And what happens when we're obedient to the Word of God? His promises are for us. When we're obedient... Everything he says is going to come to pass in our lives because when we allow ourselves to say yes and amen and just do it because he asks us to, that's when the redemption of the church is our hope. Verse 16, we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb where what happens in this moment? We read it in 1 Corinthians 15 and 50, but a corruptible puts on incorruption. A mortal is putting on immortality in this moment. Amen. We look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb because where we are eternally changed from this mortal body putting on immortality, corruption putting on incorruption, is when the marriage supper of the Lamb happens. When the dead in Christ shall rise, shall be risen first, and then those that are alive and remain shall meet the Lord in the air. What are we meeting the Lord in the air for? Read this, it's Revelation 19, 7 through 9, and it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Has anybody been married before? Has anybody had a wedding? Our wedding was very not the way that I would have done it. <laughs> My wife wanted all these extravagant, cool, and awesome things for me. I just, just do it in the church, get it over and done with. But there were specific things 
that my wife was expecting. There were specific things that my wife wanted for this special day. And there are specific things that the Lord wants for that special day when we meet Him in the air. And what is that? For us to be ready. For the bride to be ready. That's it. That's all He requires. He doesn't want it to be extravagant. He doesn't want, uh, you know, the fancy flowers. On the, I have to have my fancy flowers, honey, on, the, on this specific place. Otherwise, this day is just going to be ruined. That's not what Jesus is asking us here. All he wants is for you to be turned over to him and ready. And verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. What is this righteousness? What is this fine linen? What is this clean and white idea? What is this? When we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we have now been washed. We have now been cleansed. No longer do we have a dirty robe. No longer is our, our robe stained with the idea of sin. No longer is our robe stained with the blood of our own blood, but now it's washed by the precious blood of Jesus. That is a bride ready to go. That is a bride ready to be married, amen, is one that has partaken in the obedience of their husband. There are specific things that my wife had to have done before we got married. There were specific expectations that she had. But the Lord expects you to be baptized. The Lord expects you to be filled with the Holy Ghost. The Lord expects you to be holy and sanctified. The Lord expects you to be clean, white, ready for the day of His return. And when's that? I don't know. I don't know the day or the hour. But I do know that it's going to be very soon. I do know that the return of Jesus Christ yes. is imminent. Yes. Ephesians 5, 22 through 30 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as, the Lord, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. When you're married, your whole life becomes one. Everything, every action. Honey, what do you want to do? You, you want to go eat here? Do you want to 
You want to go to McDonald's? Do you want Taco Bell? Do you want this? I don't know. I have to make the decision. Our lives should be based on asking the Lord, what do you want? As we're married, aren't we his bride? What happened to asking God, God, where do you want me going? I know I need food in my body today, but where do you want me to go to have a divine encounter with somebody? Where do you want me to go? What store do you want me to buy groceries at, Lord? That way I can have not only nourishment to my body, but a divine encounter to add people to your body. These are things, as we understand that there is going to be a day that we're married unto Him, that our lives, our perspective, our paradigm, the way that we live our life has to be different. When we're devoted to our spouse, it's everything. We share the same bank account. We share the, sometimes the same clothes. We, we share so many different things. Intimate time. We share so many different aspects that when we're single and when we're alone, we don't get. But when we're supped together, when we're married, when we're brought together, everything changes. And when you had received the Holy Ghost, when you were baptized, when you were born again, according to John 3, 5 and Acts 2, 38, you allowed yourself to be married to Jesus Christ for eternity. What a precious, precious understanding that is. Thinking about all that weight, understanding how much that really means. But I want to remind you as we stand today, where is your vision at? Where's your perspective at? Is it just focusing on when the rapture is going to happen? Or are you focusing on the idea that the resurrection of the dead is the hope for the church? Why don't we lift our hands?